You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you'd like bonus secret history of Hollywood content, including early access to these episodes and ebook versions of the shows, go to patreon.com slash attaboysecret or follow the link in the show notes. Thank you. The church bells of Khan pealed out slow, lazy music to mark the end of the morning prayer. Collier turned his head idly to look at the village. At the well, the maidens jostled one another, giggling as they drew up water. It was a sight that Collier could see any time, and yawning, he turned back to the task in hand, the scouring of a new sword blade with water and white sand. Of a sudden, a cry went up at the other end of the village, and Collier's head was upflung as if by magic. Two men were running toward the inn. Between them they carried a shapeless bundle. Collier could only catch the colours of the object, red and white. As they ran, they cried out, Abigita! Abigita! We have seen her! Collier identified the burden which they carried between them. It was a sheep, torn to death by a panther. Dropping the scour cloth, Collier ran to where a knot of men had gathered about the two shepherds. He forced his way toward the centre of the crowd until he could hear the words of one of the men. Black as wood from a fire. Bigger than any natural leopard. A monster, I tell you. Vala and I came upon her at her meal. With my own eyes I saw her. You can measure for yourselves from here to here. The shepherd indicated a huge, bloody rent in the flank of the slain sheep. She took one mouthful. A real bagita, I swear it. The hetman of Gizikan, pulling at his virgin beard, questioned the shepherd. Fool, what did you do? Did you let the beast escape so that it may enjoy such a feast as this from our table, wherever he wills it? The shepherd protested. It was a real bagita, I tell you, hetman. What could we do? Vala shot at her, but you know that no bullet can harm a Bagita, not even a silver bullet. She just snarled at us and walked away. Walked away? The headman's tones were dubious. Yes, headman, I have said it so. Walked away, just turned and walked away. She knew we couldn't hurt her. Both Vala and I are married men, you know. I, headman, I believe them. It was Darvil who spoke, Darvil the old minstrel, who in his youth had killed a Bagita. This Bagita must be the same leopard we hunted all these last three days. If it had been a real leopard, its skin would have been drying on the walls of your house by now, Hetman. But only a pure youth who can resist her blandishments can kill a Bagita. You must select a pure youth to hunt down this were-beast. A real Saint Vladimir, pure of heart as a virgin. 
I have grown sick of these old lies which send our young men frightened into the forest, said Rifkas, the huntsman. Believe me, it is safer in the forest than before the coffee pots in the car. King God has made man lord above the beasts, and they all fear him. But by now, the women of Gizik Khan had swarmed to the scene of the excitement, and their loud outcries drowned out the old huntsman's logic. Shrill voices explained the myth to those too young to know the significance of a black leopard among the spotted ones. It is a werebeast, they said, half leopard and half woman, the reincarnation of a virgin who has died from wrongs inflicted upon her by sinful men, and who comes again to the world so that she may prey upon the flocks of the sinful. Only a pure youth, one who has lain clean and alone, can hope to slay the mythic beast. He must ride out against the Begita with only a sword at his side and a prayer to King God upon his lips. The Begita, so the women said, will change at his coming into a beautiful woman and attempt to coerce him into an embrace. If she is successful, if the youth kisses her, his life is forfeited. Changing again into a black leopard, the Begita will tear him limb from limb. But if he remains steadfast in his purity, then surely he will slay the beast. A silence fell upon the villagers, and all eyes were turned, first to the face of one youth and then to the face of another. All upon whom the eyes of the villagers fell turned blood red and averted their faces. Then Kolya, his heart pounding with excitement, stepped forward. In his right hand he held his sword, a silent declaration of his intention. Behind him he could hear his mother shrilling, Hetman, he is too young. It is but yesterday that he rode in the Jigatovka. Only two days has he worked as a man among men. The Hetman paid no attention to her. Bending forward so that he might look into Kolya's eyes, he asked, How old are you? Kolya answered sturdily, Sixteen. And you have never laid yourself down beside a woman, nor lusted after her with your eyes? No, said Kolya. The hetman doffed his caracol chalk, and with it still clasped in his hand, pointed to Kolya. A shout went up. Kolya, nephew of the armorer, had been chosen to hunt down the Bagita. It was still late afternoon, and although a pale slice of luminous white moon already rode high in the heavens, sure indication that it would set early, Kolya and the men with him still had a long while to wait before he could ride forth in search of the Begita. Davil was all for passing the time in prayer and the singing of songs, but Rivkas brought forth an earthen jug of wine and a pack of greasy playing cards. Soon the three grown men were hard at it, playing one game of cards after another. Collier was left to his own devices. He fussed with his horse, watering it at the brook, and removing the bridle so that it could graze at will. This took only a short time, and then Collier was again left with nothing to occupy him but his own fears of the night's trial. He turned his attention to the copse before him. It was dark, with the shadows of the larch and fir trees growing on either side of the brook. This stream had, in the course of the centuries, cut itself a hard bed through the solid rock. Its either bank was precipitous. No animal, Kolya thought to himself, could drink from the stream, 
unless somewhere there was a cleft in the rocky banks. If he were to follow Rivka's advice, he would have to find such a spot where the leopard could come to drink, and there await the Begita's coming. But there would be little need to find the Begita, he reasoned. She will come creeping upon me, and when she divines that I am pure of heart and have no knowledge of women, then she will turn herself into a maiden and so lure me to my death. Carefully he stole down halfway to the water, and then flattening his back against the wall of the cut, prepared to wait. The water was dark as the night, but from it came a lapping sound. Something was drinking there at the edge of the creek. Collier strained his eyes. He could see nothing. But as he continued to stare into the shadows, he caught a gleam of eyes. Yellow, round, and burning. From the Begita by Val Luton. There's no helping it, Val Luton told his new writer, DeWitt Bodine. We're stuck with that title. If you want to get out now, I won't hold it against you. Cat people, Bodine mumbled, and then shook his head. According to Charles Kerner, the title had tested well with the several hundred small-town folks who'd been polled by RKO sales scouts. I'd hate to have seen the ones they rejected, Luton grumbled. But DeWitt Bodine was hopeful. I had no intention of withdrawing, he said later, and he and I promptly started upon a careful examination of the cat in literature. There was more to be examined than we'd expected. Val was one of the best read men I've ever known, and the kind of avid reader who retains what he reads. The first property the two men decided to adapt was Algernon Blackwood's 1908 tale of devil worship and were-creatures, ancient sorceries. This was followed by Ambrose Bierce's The Eyes of the Panther, a tale of a prenatal curse upon a baby whose mother was driven mad by the sight of a fierce panther at her window while she was pregnant. The third was Monsieur Seeks a Wife by Margaret Irwin, the deliberately ambiguous tale of a man who may be married to a supernatural creature. All three of these original tales could quite easily have been adapted for the screen and repackaged as a movie called Cat People. But despite Bodine's eagerness to get started, Luton could not allow himself to be convinced by any of them. Back in 1930, when he was still a struggling writer, Luton had written a short tale of the supernatural for Weird Tales magazine, a macabre story entitled The Bagita, which told an uneasy fable of terror and superstition in a remote corner of the Ukraine during the 17th century. The small village of Gizikan has been plagued for centuries by the brutal attacks of the Bagita, a race of were-creatures who, according to legend, are the reincarnated souls of virgin girls who died from wrongs inflicted upon them by sinful men. These avenging angels snare their victims by transforming themselves into the form of an alluring woman, enticing their victims to give in to their lust and lower their guard so that the cat may attack. The only ones capable of defeating the Bagita's charms are virgin boys who must strike before falling under her spell. 
The latest attack upon a herd of sheep prompts the village to select as their next champion, the 16-year-old Kolya, who travels deep into the forest in search of the beast, determined not to be hypnotized by the Bagheeta's powers. At the water's edge, he spies the panther, and stealing his resolve, attacks the creature before it can lure him to his death. However, when the short battle is over, Collier realizes that the panther he's killed is merely that, and in a moment of divine perception, sees through not only the centuries-old legend of the Bagheeta, but the belief in God and the supernatural at large. As he makes his way back to the camp, dragging behind him the carcass of the slain panther, Collier is faced with a choice. Does he declare the traditions and beliefs of the village to be fraudulent, thereby altering forever their way of life? Or does he accept the glory of being a Bagheeta slayer and allow the village to continue as it is? As the village nears the site, he has an epiphany. I shall tell them that I first saw the Bagheeta as a beautiful maiden, Collier says to himself, bathing at the waterhole, her body surrounded by white light, that she called me by name and spoke to me courteously, and that enchanted by her beauty, I'd forgotten all warning and bent to kiss her. Collier then decides to say that a sign from the gods illuminated the night sky, which brought him back to his senses. I will say that I took a warning from this, he says, and springing away from the maiden drew my sword, so fast that I could not even see the change the Bagheeta transformed herself again into a leopard and sprang at me. I shall tell them that we fought for an hour and then, just as I was ready to drop my sword from weariness, a great strength surged through me and I killed the beast. The story ends with the line, Collier lifted his bloody sword high in the air. The cross of the hilt extended towards heaven, as if giving the victory to God. The men doffed their sheepskin caps and knelt in prayer at this proof of King God's all-powerful goodness. Kolya, who left the village as a child, has returned as a man, and the legend of the Bagheeta lives on to deceive future generations. The tale... On the surface, a dark supernatural thriller ends up becoming a deftly satirical rabbit punch to the ribcage of organized religion and its tendency to inflate and exploit the superstitions of the populace so as to further the careers of the few. Without realizing it, Luton, all the way back in 1930, had created the style for which he would become best known, namely, the concealment of a profound idea within the garments of a horror fable. The Bagheeta was added to the list of possible stories on which to base Kerner's Cat People project, and DeWitt Bodine was instantly attracted to a number of its story elements. The first aspect he liked was the underlying sexual subtext of the story. Sexual arousal means death, according to the legend of the Bagheeta. The second element he drew heavily from was the seam of folklore regarding these cursed creatures and the effect of a simple story upon the imaginations of village folk. The Bagheeta is only real to the villagers of Gizikan because someone, at some point in time, chose to tell a story that eventually led to their way of life. Perhaps this idea could be reverse-engineered to add an element of ambiguity. Perhaps the belief in such a legend could drive a human being to act in a completely irrational way, 
Or maybe, just maybe, the truth may lie in the irrational. After a few weeks of work, Luton and Bodine emerged with their first draft of the story. The tale was to begin in a remote snowbound village in the Balkans, occupied by a Nazi tank division who forced the meek villagers under their control. Each night, however, the villagers, long cursed by supernatural powers, transform into hideous cat creatures, picking off the German forces one by one. When the Nazi forces have all been murdered and eaten, the villagers decide to flee, to spread out across the world and hide among the normal. The point of view then switches to one of these refugees, a girl who travels to New York and falls in love with an American boy. From here on in, Luton's creativity began to run wild. One of the concepts he hit upon was for the audience to never hear the girl's dialogue, adding to the eerie, unconventional atmosphere that Luton was aiming for. You hear the murmur of her voice, Luton said at the time. You never hear what she's saying, and if it's necessary to give her words meaning to the audience, I think we can always contrive to have some other character tell what the girl said. Another standard horror movie trope that Luton sought to unbalance was the typical werewolf movie climax. Most of the werewolf stories I've read and all of the werewolf stories I've seen on the screen end with the beast being shot and turning back into a human being after death, Luton said. In this story, I'd like to reverse the process. For the final scene, I'd like to show a violent quarrel between the man and woman in which she's provoked into an assault upon him. To protect himself, he pushes her away. She stumbles, falls awkwardly, and breaks her neck in the fall. The young man, horrified, kneels to see if he can feel her heart beat. Under his hand, black hair and hide come up, and he draws back to look down in horror at a dead black panther. But as soon as Luton had begun to show the script to his creative team, so had he begun to fall out of love with it. Perhaps it was the prologue, perhaps it was the love story, which didn't seem to flow naturally and was introduced far too early. It's fine, Charles Kerner told him when he'd read it, but for some reason I'm not head over heels about these characters. What is it, do you think? Luton asked him. Kerner was at a loss. They just don't seem to live and breathe. They just kind of move from room to room and talk about how awful everything is. Luton mumbled something. What did you say? said Kerner. I, I said it's kind of like a universal film, said Luton. God, I, I think you've hit it. Luton snatched the script from Kerner's desk and flew from the office. You're welcome, Kerner said to no one. He arrived at his office unusually early one morning and called me in at once, said Bodine. He'd spent a sleepless night, he confessed, and he'd decided that instead of a picture with a foreign setting, he would do an original story based in contemporary New York. It was to deal with a triangle. A normal young man falls in love with a strange foreign girl who's obsessed by abnormal fears, and when her obsession destroys his love, 
He turns for consolation to a very normal girl, his office co-worker. This leads the discarded one, beset by jealousy, to attempt to destroy the young man's new love. This obsessed, maybe crazy girl was to be a Serbian-born fashion designer named Irena Dubrovna, living a low-key existence in New York and doing her best to suppress the wilder instincts within herself. For if they should ever begin to blossom, then according to the legends of her people, she will become a murderous beast. But are the legends true? But there was a small, crucial detail that Luton and Bodine had overlooked with their first story. What's the main problem with the Universal movies? A frantic Luton asked Bodine. Bodine thought about it. I've always kind of hated that drippy blood font they use. They're not realistic enough, Luton told him. Murders in the Rue Morgue, the heroine, Camille. What's her job? Bodine considered. Black Cat, said Luton. You have a travelling couple, Peter and Joan. What do they do for a living? Bodine thought about it and then shrugged. Exactly, Luton said. Everyone's an heiress or a playboy or someone's fiancé. You're instantly removed from caring about them because you cannot relate to someone who spends the entire film drifting from tea party to dinner party to lunch at the Ritz and then back to a thousand dollar a month apartment. That's why you don't care when they're being chased through the woods by a vampire. Because these people never seem real. So we give our characters occupations, Bodine said. So we give our characters occupations, Luton smiled. And not just that, I want to show them at work. I want them to seem as mundane and as normal as possible, because if a shoeshine boy who spends his days hard at work on a street corner can be haunted by a Serbian werewolf, then anyone can. Luton's concept was revolutionary. The universal horror films famed for their crashing thunder and gothic backdrops were so far removed from the reality of the present day that without realizing it, a subconscious barrier had been preemptively created between the horror and its viewer from the moment the titles began. Because of this, by 1941, the universal gallery of caricatures and parlotricks, while still entertaining, had lost their power to terrify. Luton's plan, however, was to bring the horror to the audience's front step, to present them with a perfectly crafted mirror image of their own modern world, albeit with a crack in the glass. To achieve this sense of hyper-reality, Luton himself began to personally oversee the design of almost every small detail in the film. The apartments of the characters were carefully planned so as to give the impression that the characters truly inhabited them. In Arena's apartment, for example, discarded sketches were left lying around, along with reminders of her home country in the form of small trinkets and ornaments. Later in the film, when she's married, her husband's mementos and effects are added subtly to their home surroundings. All places of business, whether the shipbuilding offices or the pet shop, or even at the desk of the hotel where the famed swimming pool sequence takes place, were scattered, somewhat chaotic and lived in, as though work had been taking place there all day. The same principles were applied to costume design. 
Luton and Bodine spent many hours discussing exactly the type of girl that Irena Dubrovna was. How much money did she make at her job? Which fashion styles appealed to her and why? What was her monthly clothing budget? Did she consider shoes to be an important part of her wardrobe? How thrifty was she when it came to replacing clothes? With this study of Irena's character complete, they were able to accurately assess the types of stores in which he might shop for clothing and sent along Luton's secretary, Jesse Ponitz, to buy an entire wardrobe of clothes from them. The clothing seen on Arena throughout the film were purchased on that very shopping trip. With their story in place, Luton called together his production team, consisting of DeWitt Bodine, editor Mark Robson, cinematographer Nicholas Musaraka, composer Roy Webb, and the director, Jacques Tourneur. Tourneur had spent his entire adolescence around the movie sets of Hollywood, following in awe behind the imposing figure of his father, Maurice Tourneur. A former assistant to sculptor Auguste Rodin, the giant figure of Maurice Tourneur had hypnotized audiences on the stages of Europe before making the move to silent cinema in France. From in front of the camera to behind it was a short distance, and Maurice found that his imposing height and growling, bear-like voice were useful tools in making errant actors do his bidding. It was a different time, said his son Jacques many years later, the old time of directors who were dictators. In 1918, he'd swung his gaze statesward and grumpily arrived in Hollywood with his wife, the former actress Fernande Petit, and his then 14-year-old son, Jacques. Hollywood was instantly in love. I must admit to being rather seduced by the boom of his voice, wrote Dorothy Nutting in Photoplay's July 1918 edition. A sensual baritone of perfect English phrased in the French manner, the twinkle of the poet's humor in his eyes. Mr. Maurice Tourneur is somewhat larger than the average Frenchman, wrote Motion Picture Classic in their profile of him, and looks more like a husky athlete than an artist and poet, and yet every word he utters is heavy with meaning. Clarence Brown, who would himself go on to become the legendary director of such films as Anna Christie, A Free Soul, and Anna Karenina, often publicly referred to Maurice Tourneur as simply God. Maurice's legend was steadily on the rise, and perhaps allowing his newfound reputation as Hollywood's most enigmatic, provocative, and volatile talents to get the better of him, he pushed his luck a little too far on the set of MGM's The Mysterious Island in 1926. Jacques, who often accompanied his growling father onto the movie sets to watch him work, recalled that four days into shooting on the film, a new face in a dark suit appeared on set and began to ask probing questions to his father about budgets and timing. Maurice did his best to swat the newcomer away, but the man was persistent. We want detailed accounts, Mr. Tourneur. We also require a verbal report each day. I'm afraid I must insist. Maurice Tourneur regarded the man for two whole uncomfortable minutes as he sucked on a cigar then glanced at one of his security guards and growled, Throw him out on his ass. 
A furious Louis B. Mayer appeared on set shortly afterwards and angrily informed Tourneur that the man he'd just thrown out was the film's producer, who was required to be on set to supervise production. The next day, the man returned, snappily demanding the same budget reports and time estimates, to which Tourneur replied, I will not work until this man leaves the set. Scarlet with embarrassment, the man was again forced to leave. Mayer again flew down from on high, hopping mad. Either Tourneur worked under the producer or he was fired. Tourneur lazily finished his cigar, flicked it at Mayer's feet, and grabbed his coat. Three days later, he was on a boat back to France. The career of Maurice Tourneur was far from over, however. French cinema held abundant opportunities for such a talented Hollywood outcast, and utilizing the technical knowledge he'd accumulated in his brief time in America, Tourneur became a leading light in French and German cinema. From 1927, Maurice decided to see if his son had picked up any useful tips by following him around so far and employed him as his assistant director. By the time 1933 arrived, Jacques was confident enough in his abilities to strike out on his own and returned to Hollywood hoping to redeem the Tourneur name and declaring proudly to anyone who asked that I'll be happy if I'm half as great a director as my father. He arrived along with his wife, Christiane, to find a town that didn't seem much interested in giving a tourneur another chance. Possessing of only $40 with which to support themselves and no work forthcoming, Jacques and Christiane lived frugally, eating only when absolutely necessary and often sleeping with their overcoats on so as to save money on heating bills. After several weeks of this lifestyle, Christiane's spirits began to fall. Don't worry, he told her one night. I promise you, my darling, that one day I will shower you with gold. After two further soul-crushing months of shopping around town in search of work, Tourneur himself was giving serious thought to returning to France with his tail between his legs. But his gentle giant demeanor had endeared him to many in Hollywood's social scene. Richard Goldstone, a writer at MGM, described him as very charming and affable, very intelligent, round-faced, very French, loved good food, loved good wine. He was a very, very nice guy with a great personality. Bert Granite, another writer, said, Jacques was a six-footer, basically a very shy man with a wonderful sardonic ranch sense of humor. Granite's wife, Charlotte, called him a big teddy bear. The people who loved him loved him very much and understood him. Jacques Turner had no problem making friends in Hollywood, and it was inevitable that someone at some time would do their best to pull a string or two for him. The break came in 1934 when he was hired by MGM to act as second unit director on a number of their feature films at the salary of $100 a week. On his first payday at the studio, he visited the cash office and handed in his slip. I, I wonder, he said to the middle-aged woman behind the window, could I make a, a very odd request? 
if it's within my power, she said. I, I wonder if you would give me my hundred dollars in one dollar bills. The lady raised an eyebrow. It's so that I can keep a promise, he told her. An hour later, Turner arrived home. His wife, Christiane, had fallen asleep while reading on their bed, and quietly, Tourneur opened his pay envelope and gently laid out all one hundred of the dollar bills over her sleeping body before shaking her softly awake with a smile. You see, he said as she opened her eyes, I told you, I would shower you with gold. Tourneur's first assignment was to direct a sequence in 1935's The Winning Ticket, in which a sweepstake is drawn. Tourneur spent an entire week shooting, as he put it, miles and miles of footage, but when the film came out, he discovered to his disappointment that his contribution had been edited down to a mere few seconds. It was David O. Selznick, currently MGM's big-name producer, insisting on a second-unit director with a French background, that gave Tourneur his real break. The movie was a lavish adaptation of The Tale of Two Cities starring Ronald Coleman, which called for a second-unit team to bring in the goods on a sequence built around the storming of the Bastille prison. As second-unit producer, Selznick had assigned his second-in-command, one Val Luton, and an instant friendship was born. He had a Russian background, Tourneur said later, and he was a dreamer and an idealist. I am a realist. I always brought him back to Earth. You need that in a partnership. He'd go off into flights of fancy and I'd say, well, look, this can't be done. I'd pull him down and he'd bring me up. Together, Luton and Tourneur turned in a fearsomely kinetic sequence of film to Selznick, who marveled at the men's work. The Bastille Siege, by far the grand highlight of the movie, was dazzling in its storytelling technique. Selznick had insisted on showing a marching mass of angry townsfolk, stamping their way towards the prison through the grand streets of the city. Tourneur had hit upon a radical idea, though. Instead of merely showing a crowd fully formed, marching at the viewer, how much better to show a mere sample of them, 600 or so, as they funnel through a narrow street only for the camera to rise high above the scene, showing the other 3,000 milling, marching countrymen among the veins of the city, about to arrive and unleash hell. So impressed was Selznick with the finished result that he insisted upon including a special credit at the film's beginning, stating, Revolutionary sequences arranged by Val Luton and Jacques Tourneur. Hollywood's newest wonder team had just been born. The story of Cat People, as dreamed into being by Val Luton and DeWitt Bodine, was defiantly unconventional. You see... The Mamelukes came to Serbia long ago, and they made the people slaves. Well, at first, the people were good and worshipped God in a true Christian way. But uh, little by little, the people changed. 
when King John drove out the Mamelukes and came to our village, he found dreadful things. People bowed down to Satan and said their masses to him. They had become witches and were evil. But King John put some of them to the sword, but some, the wisest and the most wicked, escaped into the mountains. Irena Dubrovna, a Serbian-born fashion designer living in New York, meets and befriends Oliver Reed, an all-American draftsman for a shipbuilding firm, and quickly falls in love with his simple charm. Irena Dubrovna, is that a Russian name? No, I'm from Serbia. Oh, I see. Would you mind spelling it? Want to know how to spell my name? Are you going to write me a letter? I'd like to write you a letter. What about? I would say in this letter, dear Mr. Dubrovna, I would say, will you have tea with me? Here's my house. Perhaps, Mr. Reed, you would like to have tea in my apartment? Oh, oh Mr. Brogner, you make life so simple. Within a few days, the pair have been bewitched by each other and decide to get married. This wouldn't usually be a problem, but for Irena, it presents a terrifying dilemma. Since childhood, She's been reared to believe that she's descended from a race of devil-worshipping heathens, cursed by the church and blighted by a supernatural affliction. Should they ever give in to jealousy or to their sexual urges, then they will transform into a wild cat and devour their lover. From the very start, Irena is honest with Oliver about her superstitions, longing to believe that this deep-rooted belief in a terrible curse is nothing but nonsense, but terrified just in case it may be true. In fairy tales, Irena. Fairy tales heard in your childhood. Nothing more than that. They've nothing to do with you, really. You're Irena. You're here in America. You're so normal, you're even in love with me, Oliver Reed, a good, plain Americano. You're so normal, you're gonna marry me. And those fairy tales, you can tell them to our children. They'll love them. Oliver and Irena agree to enter into a chaste marriage, believing that they can conquer Irena's irrational belief in the paranormal and find happiness. But they have not reckoned with their own primal urges of lust and jealousy, especially when Oliver begins to seek comfort in the arms of his co-worker, Alice. What the hell is this crap? said RKO executive producer Lou Ostro when he read their finished script. Where are the monsters? Where is the horror? Ostro, the head of the division producing Luton's proposed horror movies, was in the office of Charles Kerner, the only man above him at RKO. I kind of like it, said Kerner. It's good and weird. It's dull, said Ostro. I thought we were supposed to be making horror movies, not relationship stories. I think he's onto something, Kerner smiled. I'm willing to indulge Mr. Luton on this one. Haven't we already been burned by indulgences, said Ostro. Isn't that why we're at the place we're at now? Luton knows how to tell a story, said Kerner. I've listened to the guy. He has a gift. He's got a great team on this, some real talent. Come on, Lou. Get excited. With their script approved, the search was on for the actress to play the pivotal role of Irena. To have someone who plainly looks like a cat will be too obvious, Luton told his team. 
What we really need is someone with just a little kitten in their eyes. Someone like Simone Simon. By 1942, Simone Simon had already blown her chance in Hollywood. Sparkling with life and with the world at her feet, Simon spent the first half of her 20s trying to figure out which adventure she wanted to take in life. She dabbled in modeling as a fashion designer. She spent a few months as a nightclub singer. She even tried her hand at being a sculptor. But it was a chance encounter in a restaurant in the summer of 1931 that decided her fate, when she happened to catch the eye of Russian director Viktor Torzhansky, who was bewitched by her elfish features and signed her to a movie contract. The roles in Europe came thick and fast, and by 1935, Hollywood had taken notice. It was Daryl F. Zanuck at 20th Century Fox who beat the rest of the studios to the punch and signed her to a contract. And so began the search to find the vehicle in which to present her to American audiences. Zanuck first considered the film a message to Garcia, but Simon's command of English was so slight that by the time she'd gotten it under control, the role had gone to an up-and-coming Rita Hayworth. She was next considered for the female lead in Under Two Flags, but by this time, Simone was under the influence of a rather unfortunate piece of advice doled out to her by Marlene Dietrich, who'd spent an afternoon in conversation with Simone at the studio, and who'd advised her that a star is only as important as she makes herself out to be. On the set of Under Two Flags, Simone had taken this advice to mean that if she acted like the biggest star on the planet, then the studio would treat her accordingly. This was only partly true. Her snappy demands and insolent behavior led to director Frank Lloyd refusing to work with her, and after just 12 days of shooting, she was fired from his movie. Almost a year later, Zana could cool down enough to give her another shot, and Simone Simon made her Hollywood debut in the controversial drama Girls' Dormitory, in which she played a schoolgirl in love with her much older teacher. Despite receiving third billing behind Herbert Marshall and Ruth Chatterton, the movie was heavily slanted towards making Simon an overnight sensation, giving her most of the screen time in the film and providing her with so many gauzy close-up shots that by the time the shoot had ended, the actual female star of the film, Ruth Chatterton, was furious. Her character, Anna, whose love for Marshall goes unrequited, was made to seem positively dowdy next to the radiantly fresh-faced Simon and she began to complain to the director, Irving Cummings. Simon was feisty, and when she heard about Chatterton's complaints, she again took the advice of Marlene Dietrich and began to openly snub Chatterton on set. By the time the shoot was over, Simon was back to her finger-snapping ways, and coupled with the openly damning verdict on Simon's attitude coming from Chatterton's corner, she was quickly pigeonholed as an actress difficult to work with. The scandalous subject matter of the movie, however, coupled with Simone's remarkably sensual performance, sent her career quickly skywards, and the press couldn't get enough of this alluring new French star. For a while, they reported incessantly on Simone's affair with composer George Gershwin, and then on the seemingly endless stream of boyfriends, who'd usually been romanced and discarded by the time the Sunday papers arrived each week. 
Her simmering reputation as a free-spirited lover of men wasn't helped by the fact that a disgruntled maid leaked to the press the story that once Simon had selected her next conquest, he was given a golden key that unlocked the private door to her boudoir. But scandalous press reports aside, by the end of the 30s, Simon's own dissatisfaction with her American movie career, coupled with the fact that most found her difficult to work with, had made her yearn for Europe once more, and disillusioned with her crack at Hollywood, she returned to France to pick up where she'd left off almost a decade ago. Perhaps if the world of 1939 hadn't suddenly become such an incendiary place, then Simon would have been a stranger to Hollywood forevermore. But the outbreak of war caused many in Europe to escape the flames of hatred if possible, and in 1941, she returned to Hollywood to seek not only prosperity, but safety. This time around, and with a few years of absence to quiet the scandals of the 30s, everything seemed to go right. Her first role was that of Belle, the seductive handmaiden of the devil, in William Dieterle's classic, The Devil and Daniel Webster. I have other recommendations too, from a very dear friend of yours. Never mind. What's your name? Belle. Belle? Where are you from? From over the mountain. It was her turn in this movie, coincidentally made by RKO, that Luton had recently seen, and so enchanted had he been by her coquettish performance, that when the issue of casting Arena arose, there was only one face that seemed to fit. Simon was sent the script, fell in love with it instantly, and Luton's team had their star. On the 28th of July 1942, under the direction of Jacques Tourneur, the noir cameras of cinematographer Nicolas Musuraka began to capture the eerie, shadowy world sprung from the imagination of Luton and Bodine. The film was to feature a number of important set pieces. The first of these was the celebrated street scene, in which Arena follows her love rival Alice down a shadowy street, lit only by small, stark pools of light that fall from street lamps. As the pursuit continues, Alice, growing ever more nervous at the sound of Arena's following footsteps, begins to hurry, and soon the two sets of footsteps begin to merge and blend, until the audience can no longer be sure that Arena is still somewhere behind her. As Alice pauses to take a look back into the shadows over her shoulder, we hear the low growl of a cat, followed quickly by a savage hiss. However, it is not the strike of a rainer's cat form that darts into view, but the sight of a bus applying its hissing air brakes. To this technique of slowly building the tension until climaxing with both shock and relief, Luton gave the name Buses after this now legendary moment in Cat People. To find ever new buses or horror spots is a horror expert's most difficult problem, he told Liberty Magazine. Horror spots must be well planned and there should be no more than four or five in a picture. Most of them are caused by the fundamental fears, sudden sound, wild animals, darkness, 
The horror addicts will populate the darkness in a picture with more horrors than all the horror writers in Hollywood could think of. Luton's methods were in stark contrast to the ones being used everywhere else in Hollywood, who all seemed to believe that if you had a monster in your film, you should show it in gratuitous detail. Luton had more trust and respect for his audience's imagination. By concealing the scares just out of sight, the mind of the viewer could paint the face of the prowling beast for themselves. Val Luton and his audience were making horror movies together. To the Los Angeles Times, he expanded upon this notion by saying, I'll tell you a secret. If you make the screen dark enough, the mind's eye will read anything into it you want. We're great ones for dark patches. Remember the long walk alone at night in Cat People? Most people swear they saw a leopard move in the hedge above her, but they didn't. Optical Illusion Dark Patch The second major set piece comes a little later in the movie, when Alice is once again terrorized by Irena, who this time follows her into the basement swimming pool of a hotel. To escape her pursuer, Alice runs to the pool and dives in, swimming out to the middle and peering desperately into the shadows that surround the room to see if she can identify the threat. Here again, the shadows are used to masterful effect, as the light reflected from the surface of the pool plays with their tattered edges, giving the impression of movement. We hear the low growling of some formless animal, perhaps see a shape move from the corner of our eye, but nothing definite, that is, on screen. For each viewer, the creature in the shadows at the edge of the water is different. A panther, a half-transformed catwoman, Irena herself, perhaps, teeth bared, crawling against the wall. The scene sprang from the mind of Jacques Tourneur himself, who'd undergone a remarkably uncanny dress rehearsal for the scene some years previously. Tourneur had gone to visit a friend in West Hollywood to share a few drinks and swim in his pool. The friend had not been home, but so used to visiting was Tourneur that he poured himself a drink took off his clothes and began to swim. The friend, an owner of two pet cheetahs, had for some reason been careless that day. And I'll be damned, Tourneur said later, if one of the cheetahs wasn't out of his cage and starting to prowl around and growl in a low way and I thought, oh my god, here I am feeling naked. I can't scream and I was going around in circles in the nude. Luckily, the cheetah was afraid of the water, and eventually, from way back on the property somewhere, the gardener came with a rake and shooed the cheetah back to his cage. The third major set piece in the film comes towards the close of the story, when Oliver and Alice are menaced at their office by the cat form of Irena, who has come to devour them both. Telephone rang and I answered. It was someone on the other end of the line. 
could almost hear them listening. And then there was a little click as they hung up the receiver. That was the night I was followed on the transverse. Ollie, let's get out of here, I'm afraid. That was Arena. I know it was Arena who called. She could call from downstairs. She may be on her way up now. Get your things. Again, each scare is left out of shot, but Arena's presence is keenly felt, especially in the slow build-up. Oliver and Alice notice that the door to their office, wide open a moment ago, is now closed and locked. It's locked. The shuffling in the shadows beneath the desk reveals that their worst fears have come true. They are locked in a dark room with a savage beast that wishes them harm. Terrified, their only course of action is to back away from the shadows towards the brightly lit corner of the room, but by doing so, have cut off their only means of escape. In the name of God, leave us in peace. Each of these sequences, now regarded as classics of the horror genre, made magical use of Luton's dark patch theory and were masterfully executed by Jacques Tourneur and his supernaturally gifted cinematographer, Nicolas Musaraka, a man blessed with a divine gift to bend light and shadow to his will. But there was one man who wasn't happy. Lou Ostro, already sceptical of Luton's approach to horror, watched back the rushes after day four of shooting and was horrified, but not in a good way. Ostro summoned Luton to his office and glared at him. Val, I, I have to tell you, I'm not happy. I know you don't have the largest budget in the world, but that doesn't mean you can go off making art house movies. Lou, if you'll just watch it when we're finished, I think yeah, you'll yeah, see. Yeah, 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 yeah. I have been watching, Val. I've been watching everything you're doing, and this is not what we employed you to do. We wanted an honest-to-goodness horror flick, something to make the bobby socks leap around in their seats and the jocks pee their pants. The problem is that you have one of the most pretentious units at the studio oh, working on this thing. Come on, Lou. The team's good. The film's good. You're overreacting, and you haven't even given it a chance. In fact, that's exactly what I have given it, Val. One chance. But no more. Now, I want you to go back to the set and fire Tourneur. You're getting a new director tomorrow, one without a beret and the need to express his soul on film. Wait, wait, Lou. Let me speak to Kerner before we go firing anyone. I'm your boss, Val. Kerner hired you, but I am your boss. Remember that. Now get out of here and go fire Tourneur. Or send him up to me and I'll fire him. I don't care. Luton hurried along to Kerner's office where his secretary waved him down. Charles, I mean, Mr. Kerner isn't here, she told him. He's in New York today. When's he back? Luton asked. Tomorrow sometime? She shrugged. If he calls, I need to speak to him immediately, okay? Very well, Mr. Luton, I'll tell him. The scene currently being filmed for Cat People was on the stairs at Arena's apartment house. To keep costs down, they were using the elaborately designed stair set from Orson Welles' The Magnificent Ambersons, an ornate and grandiose reminder to RKO executives of the dangers of indulgence. Luton arrived and drew Tourneur aside, informing him of the situation and telling him to hightail it off the studio lot as quickly as possible. If Ostro found Tourneur, he'd be fired. Their only chance was to keep Tourneur out of the way until they could speak to Charles Kerner. Nick, you're the boss, Tourneur barked to Nicholas Musaraka and fled for the hills. 
Luton spent the next several hours covertly overseeing production on Cat People. They only had a few weeks after all. While artfully evading the eye of Lou Ostro, who visited the set more than once in search of Tourneur or Luton to see if his order had been carried out. After a day spent playing cat and mouse with Lou Ostro, Luton wearily returned home to Ruth, who'd chosen this day of all days to announce that it was time to find a home of their own. She chose as her opening gambit the perennially overused, don't you get tired of staring at other people's walls? I guess I would, Luton replied, if I ever had time to sit and stare at walls. You know what I mean, Ruth said, rolling her eyes. I sometimes watch paint dry, Luton said. For days at a time, I sometimes just stand in a park, all alone, and feel the wind across my body for hours and hours. Okay, okay, Ruth said. I feel like I should paint the walls a color I like, but then I figure, why the hell should I? They're not my walls, and so then I start wondering why I don't do the opposite and just peel the paint from the walls. Wow, you need to take up crochet or something, Luton told her. Seriously, she said. I want to feel settled, and I don't feel settled. I want Nina and Val Jr. to have permanent rooms that they can grow up in. The conversation had come at an oddly coincidental moment. For much of the afternoon, Luton, while dodging the gaze of Lou Ostro, had drifted in and out of conversation with one of his supporting actors, Jack Holt, who was trying desperately to offload his ranch-style house on Corsica Drive near Pacific Palisades. Do you realize, Jack Holt had said to Luton, that if the Japs invade America, which they're saying is pretty likely, then those of us living near the beach will have Japs in our kitchens. We're going to be trying to run them back into the sea with pitchforks. You can't be serious, Luton had said. Serious, Holt said indignantly. You're darn tootin' I'm serious, and I ain't the only one. Why, coastal property across the land is going for a song at the moment. I'd offload mine if I could, but no one's fool enough to buy it. Incredibly, Holt was correct. The fear of invasion by Japanese forces during 1942 was so feared that coastline properties for sale were flooding the market. In some cases, houses were seeing up to 80% of their values slashed in order to ensure fast sale. In Jack Holt's case, the house he was desperate to unload to some sucker fool enough to buy it consisted of a pine-paneled living room designed and built by Holt himself, a four-car garage, several dozen acres of fertile land overloaded with blooming fruit trees, and over a hundred rose bushes neatly planted in elegant gardens. So eager was he to sell that along with the house he was even offering to throw in all the furnishings, including his antique china, crystal glasses and chandeliers, and Egyptian cotton linens, all for the ridiculously low price of $15,000. Luton called Holt and told him that he may be interested, but wouldn't be able to say for definite until after the release of Cat People. If the film wasn't a hit, then Luton's future income couldn't be counted upon. And in the space of one short phone call, Val Luton was feeling the pressure at home, too. By the time Lou Ostro arrived at RKO the next morning, his orders had once again been defied. Charles Kerner had arrived back in Hollywood as dawn had broken, and almost within the hour, Luton had tracked him down and pleaded for backup. Kerner's bags were left unpacked in his hallway, and he and Luton drove to RKO, where Luton had arranged for the current rushes to be screened for him. I don't know, Lou, Kerner told a furious Ostro. Far as I can see, they're sticking to the game plan. 
So far, we've spent almost $100,000 on a second-grade love story being filmed like a damn nightmare, said Ostro. Lou, if, if you don't mind, said Luton, I'd, I'd really like to put that on the poster. Ostro glared across the room at Luton. Kerner raised a hand in caution. Val, you and your team get back to work. Lou, I'm happy for Val's team to carry on as they are. Tourneur stays. If you have any suggestions as to how to increase the horror, I'm sure Val and the team will be willing to listen to them, right? Of course, Val said flatly. Right. Good, said Kerner. Now can I go home and have my damn breakfast? This is going to be a disaster, Ostro said. He turned and stamped from the office. It might be an idea to play ball if the opportunity arises, Kerner sighed. Lou's a good guy, Val. He just cares about this place. Remember that. Luton nodded and made to leave. As for the movie being a disaster, Val, prove him wrong, for God's sake. For the next couple of weeks, work on Cat People progressed in peace. Tourneur's direction was fluid and inspired. Bodine's script sprang to shadowy life before his eyes. The lens of Nick Musaraka swallowed the Stygian blacks and radiant whites of each story beat. The spiky 1930s behavior of Simone Simon was tamed and channeled into a subtle, enigmatic performance as a girl cursed and damned. By the time the team were making ready to film their last two set pieces, Luton had almost forgotten about Lou Ostro and his ideas about horror films. But he was about to be reminded. The two scenes left to be shot were the swimming pool scene and the final office confrontation. Luton and Tourneur were very clear on the way they wanted these crucial scenes to be filmed. Utilizing shadows and sound, they wanted to leave the question of whether Irena really does change into a cat up to the audience by never explicitly showing the creature itself. If filmed correctly, the viewer could draw any conclusion they wanted. Irena could be a werebeast, or Irena could be mentally unbalanced from years of conditioning as a child. The beast could actually be a product of Oliver and Alice's imagination, their fears about Irena's stories playing tricks on them. One thing Luton and Tourneur both agreed on absolutely, though, was not to show a cat. As the office confrontation scene was being set up, Ostro arrived wearing a smile that chilled Luton's blood. I got you a cat, Ostro said. Knock down price so it won't dent your budget. Thank you, but we don't need it, Luton told him. Ostro's grin began to fade. You're taking the damn cat. It's a black leopard. It's going to be drugged and you're going to use it. This film is called Cat People. Even if it kills me, I will have a cat in this film. Do you understand? Luton and Tourneur swapped glances. Luton could very well have stormed off to Charles Kerner's office once more and more than likely could have convinced Kerner to once again back him up. But Kerner's words came floating back to him. Might be an idea to play ball if the opportunity arises. Okay, Lou, Luton said with a wince. Tell me about your leopard. That evening, he ran the day's events past Ruth. Why don't you ask Nazimova about him, she suggested. I don't think she knows him, Luton said. Ruth rolled her eyes. 
I mean, why don't you ask Nazimova about how to deal with him? She's been in the business for years. She must have run up against guys like Lou Ostro. Ten minutes later, Luton's call had been successfully connected to his aunt Adelaide, and the problem had been laid out before her. Who is Meg Film? You or Mr. Ostrich? Well, I, I'm the producer of the film. Well, then make film you want to make. If you make film Mr. Ostrich want to make, then film become Mr. Ostrich film and not Vladimir film. Part of me thinks I should give way a little to keep the peace, though. I don't want to get fired. Ruth and I want to buy a house. Ay, 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 ay. Use your brains, Vladimir. You can give way and still make your own. But how? Use your brains, Vladimir. Why must bother me with questions so simple to answer for your own self? Go away now. I am in company of beautiful person and have no time for conference about Mr. Ostrich. The phone fell dead. Well, said Ruth. Luton grinned. I think I have an idea. Luton's plan, if it came off, would satisfy Lou Ostro, at least for now. Charles Kerner would receive the report that Luton was playing ball, which would no doubt improve his standing at the studio. And maybe... Just maybe, cat people would be better for it. The whole thing depended on whether or not Nicholas Musaraka could pull off some magic. Musaraka had begun his life in America in 1907 when he and his father Cosimo had travelled from their native Italy to seek their fortunes in the West. By the time the 20s arrived, Musaraka was working as a chauffeur for J. Stuart Blackton, one of the founders of Vitagraph Studios and these days, considered to be the grandfather of American animation due to his pioneering work in stop-motion and cartoons. Generally, Musaraka's day would consist of taking Blackton to the studio and then waiting around all day to take him home. After a few weeks of dozing in the car while waiting for his boss, Musaraka had become curious about the oddball behavior going on around him and had decided to investigate the studio for himself. He was intrigued by the work of the makeup artists, who applied texture and shading to the faces of actors in the same way that a street artist would sketch upon a canvas. He was transfixed by the skill of the prop men and production designers, who began with an empty soundstage and just a few hours later had built a street in Rome, or a scientific laboratory, or the cabin of a Spanish galleon. But it was the giant lumbering cameras with their glimmering watchful eyes that fascinated Nicholas Musaraka. Hours were spent watching the focus pullers, the gangs of technicians who lovingly adjusted each minute mechanical variation, the boys who arrived and wound the slapping snakes of film in and around the spools and sprockets, and the reverential awe when the grand beast whirred into life sucking in the drama before them all and preserving it on preciously guarded celluloid. The apprenticeship of Nicholas Musaraka began soon afterwards at the feet of the Vitagraph movie cameras and with the blessing of J. Stuart Blackton blossomed into a lifetime love affair with the possibilities of the moving image. By the time the 30s arrived, Musaraka's skill as a cinematographer had seen him rise to the top of every director's wish list. Shooting in a pitch-black studio, the eye of Musaraka's camera could pick out a pinpoint of light amid the gloom and turn it into a blossoming flower on screen. 
His camera work on the 1940 thriller Stranger on the Third Floor, with its nightmare visuals and slashes of acutely skewered shadows, was so heavily influenced by the legacy of German folk cinema that it has since been hailed as the first true film noir, a style and genre that was energized and established by Musaraka's spidery visuals throughout the 40s. Indeed, so revered had he become amongst his fellow cinematographers that he was described unanimously by them as a painter with light. His invitation to join Val Luton's team was no accident. Luton knew that all horrors begin in the shadows, and no man in Hollywood could paint them as vividly on screen as Nicolas Musaraka. Jacques Tourneur and Nicolas Musaraka listened as Luton laid out his plan. Oliver and Alice are working late in the draftsman's office, Luton explained. Suddenly, Alice realizes that the door, which had been open, is now closed. They hear the low growl of a cat and realize that Arena has locked them all in together. A shape in the darkness. A pair of eyes. Alice and Oliver back away and find themselves cornered. The eyes disappear beneath a desk and emerge from the other side, following the terrified pair to the light in the corner. A shadow darts between the table legs. The growling grows nearer. Luton looked at them both. Ostro wants us to use a real leopard. I've promised him that we will. It's your job to make sure that it stays as hidden as possible. Tourneur frowned. You want us to light up the room enough to see table legs and shapes moving around, but not enough to see what the shape is. Both men looked at Musaraka, who shrugged. No problem. A few days later, Lou Oster arrived on set followed by an animal trainer, who dragged behind him a sedated black leopard on a leash. For hours, Ostro stood by as the leopard was lured from point to point around the room. His eyes flicked between the action on set and the camera of Tourneur, making sure that it was indeed functioning and pointed at the cat itself, not some space beyond. The room, intricately designed by Tourneur and masterfully lit by Musaraka, was a marvel of contradictions. Utilizing the glaring light from the desk lamps and harsh beams of pure white from specially positioned spotlights, Musaraka and Tourneur were able to keep the space above the desks lit enough to capture the terror on the actors' faces and dark enough below to create a beguiling contrast of greys and blacks, silhouettes of table legs and chairs against even blacker shades where something is prowling, waiting to attack. The resulting effect is as though Alice and Oliver are wading to safety through dark waters, where beneath the surface, a faceless danger pursues. When the day's shooting was over, Ostro watched a brief sample of the rushes, satisfied that the film finally had its cat. However, Musaraka and Tourneur's clever staging, coupled with a remarkable editing job by Mark Robeson, would ensure that by the time the film was ready for release, the leopard would be no more than glimpsed. The following week, the process was repeated, this time at the swimming pool set, where the entire bottom half of the wall surrounding the water was obscured by shadows. The leopard was left to prowl the corners, lured from place to place by the twitching trainer, as Lou Ostro looked on proudly. This was the film that RKO had wanted, he muttered to himself from time to time. 
In fact, once shooting on this scene had been completed, Tourneur, watching back the rushes, discovered that they'd been so successful in disguising the leopard's presence that he was forced to reshoot a few scenes so as to add an actual moving object in the darkness. But instead of employing the leopard to do so, he simply used his own fist, gently passing it in front of the lighting to create a moving shape. Shooting came to a close on the 21st of August 1942, several days ahead of schedule despite the reshoots ordered by Lou Ostro. The final budget used for the movie was $134,000, 16,000 below the budget allowed. Luton and his unit had brought in the film ahead of time and with change to spare. Charles Kerner was delighted. Even Lou Ostro had to admit that Luton's feat was impressive. A screening was arranged at the RKO's private cinema, at which Luton, Musaraka, Tourneur, editor Mark Robeson, and the film's composer Roy Webb watched nervously from the rear while Charles Kerner, Lou Ostro, and the rest of the RKO executives sat in silence at the front, watching the movie that they hoped would revive the studio's fortunes. When the film ended, the front row all rose to their feet and filed silently past Luton's crew, trying not to meet their eye. Roy Webb shook his head in disappointment, while Tourneur merely muttered the word, Shit. The last man to walk past them was Lou Ostro, who shook his head dramatically and slowed up until the rest of the executives had all left. Call that a horror film, he said. Disaster and then followed his bosses out into the studio. By November of 1942, the film had been prepped for release and screened for the press. Tourneur was by now convinced that the film was going to sink like a stone, despite the amount of love the team had afforded upon it. This was a tragedy for Tourneur. He'd enjoyed the experience of making cat people immensely, not least because he and Luton seemed to be the opposite sides of the same brain both dedicated to creating films that did not spoon-feed their audience and instead made use of their imaginations in a collaborative way. It therefore angered him slightly to see that the seeming failure of their movie did not seem to be troubling the placid Val Luton. Instead of fretting about the upcoming release of the film and of the critics' reviews which were due at any moment, Luton seemed sanguine, even positive about the whole experience, despite being a pariah among the other RKO executives, who were all declaring Cat People the second ruination of their beloved studio. The first reviews hit on, of all days, Friday the 13th of November 1942, a few weeks before the film was due to be released, and Tourneur's heart was broken even further. The film is a laboured and obvious attempt to induce shock, wrote Bosley Crowther for the New York Times. The themes of the movie are explored at tedious and graphically unproductive length. Box Office called it grim and unrelenting. This is a dose of horror best suited to addicts past the curable age. It's definitely not for children, young or old. It's straight from the psychopathic clinic. Praise came in slight glimmers when Variety commented that Jacques Tourneur does a fine job with the most difficult assignment. 
Matters weren't helped by the reviews of several social societies that had been given early access to the film at a preview. University women called it an unhealthy film, while business and professional women said that it was weird and unbelievable. The speech arts fraternity Zeta Phi Eta dealt the killing blow with their brief appraisal, a horrible idea, unethically treated. Have you read these? An aghast tourneur said to Luton as he numbly made his way through them. We're getting killed. My favorite is the Parent Teachers Association review, said Luton with a smile. They say we're morbid and unconstructive, which is one of those words that doesn't sound quite real, even though I'm sure it is. Doesn't this bother you? Turner said. Val, we're going to be out of a job. Either that or we'll be stooges making musical shorts until that battery runs flat. Luton walked to a mirror and peered at himself with a sigh. He adjusted his tie, then smoothed back his hair and said, The only review I care about is the Hill Street. The Hill Street Theatre, located at 801 South Hill Street in Los Angeles, lived a brief but eventful life. It had begun in 1922 as a junior Orpheum, playing host of vaudeville shows and star attraction movies, as well as the traveling shows of almost every major player in American entertainment, from Al Jolson to Josephine Baker. From dawn to dusk, its doors would suck in the milling crowds of Los Angeles, who arrived to find the spectacular auditorium with its cavernous stage, framed by two of the most monstrous pipe organs in America. The ceiling was so high above the plush seats that it had become a game among visiting patrons to see if they could throw up popcorn and hit the roof, a feat that, as far as official records show, no one ever managed. The theatre sat a solid 3,000 LA's every day, and for some bizarre reason, the seats always seemed to be filled by the more discerning of California's audiences. Acts that stuttered or failed to amuse on the Hill Street stage were booed and heckled more fiercely than at any other venue in Los Angeles. Films that played there had to get to the point quickly, had to thrill from the off, had to sizzle without stopping, or within minutes of beginning, were being pelted with hailstorms of food by the writhing crowds in the bleachers. If a film could make it through its first appearance at the Hill Street Theatre, then it was almost guaranteed to be a winner nationwide. On December 5, 1942, Val Luton, Jacques Tourneur, Nicolas Musaraka, and DeWitt Bodine arrived at the Hill Street Theatre along with 2,996 skeptical others, to watch a special preview of Cat People. From the very first moment, Luton feared the worst. The preview was preceded by a Disney cartoon about a pussycat, said DeWitt Bodine later. Val's spirits sank lower and lower as the audience began to catcall and make loud mewing sounds. Oh God, Luton murmured to his team as the crowd around him whooped and heckled. Glancing from side to side, Luton wiped the sweat from his brow and shook his head. We're doomed, he said. The screen fell black, and the circus around them began to shake with derision. Nicholas Musaraka silently glanced at Tourneur and raised an eyebrow. This is a nightmare, said Tourneur. Suddenly, 
The auditorium was illuminated by a beam of light which spelled out the film's title on the screen. Screams of scorn echoed around them, and as Roy Webb's music began to play, the audience began to roar with mocking cat impressions and laughter. Luton shrank down into his seat. But as soon as the last credit had played out, a curious thing began to happen. When the credits were over, DeWitt Bodine said later, and the film began to unreal, the audience quieted, and as the story progressed, reacted as we hoped an audience might. There were gasps and some screaming as the shock sequences grew. The audience accepted and believed our story and was enchanted. Incredibly, the defiantly discriminating crowd of the Hill Street Theatre were slowly won over by Luton's savage fairy tale of a girl cursed. Luton and Bodine's characters were no gothic stereotypes, creeping from doorway to doorway in a thunder-drenched castle. These were credible, modern Americans, people with jobs, people who took the same trains to work as the audience, who wore the same clothes, ate the same food, and who were incredibly facing a supernatural threat of terrifying proportions. Along with Tourneur's enchanted direction and the magic of Musaraka's shadows, the film had become a fractured picture of modern America, haunted by an ancient evil, and even the rowdiest crowd in Los Angeles was won over. As Alice was pursued down a shadowy street by Reina, the theatre patrons leaned forward in their seats, gnawing nervously on their knuckles. At the sound of Luton's bus, the entire auditorium shrieked in terror and leapt into the air. As Alice found herself stalked in the swimming pool by a creature in the darkness, her screams were echoed around the theatre by several hundred others. As Oliver and Alice are backed into an office corner, the low growling of the approaching monster somewhere beneath the desks growing nearer. Howls of terror rang among the seats from terrified patrons, praying that the ordeal would end. And when finally, the closing overture began to play against the final credits, Luton, Tourneur, Musaraka and Bodine sat speechless in their seats as 3,000 strangers jumped into the air and began to applaud their film. On Christmas Day 1942, the rest of the world got to see the film that was causing all the fuss. Cautious theatre owners who'd read the scathing reviews of the film in Box Office and Variety in the New York Times booked the movie in for only a few days. And then, Cat People Fever began. Showings of the movie were sold out each and every time it played throughout the country. Customers who'd missed the window of release began to inquire in their thousands at confused box offices in America asking when it would be back. 
Word of mouth for the film was some of the strongest ever seen for a Hollywood movie. Terrified audiences are told their friends, who had in turn rushed to cinemas to see for themselves. Suddenly, other, newer movies were being cancelled in theatres so that cat people could return. And every time it did, it played to capacity houses, and every time it played, it struck horror into the hearts of its audiences, who fled from theatres giddy with grinning shock and rushing to tell new people. The bookings of just a few days turned into just a few weeks. At the Rialto Theatre in South Pasadena, it played for so long that puzzled film critics who had upon first viewing damned this overly artistic horror effort as nonsense returned for a second look at this sleeper hit that seemed to be paralyzing America with fear. Variety's revised review, released just a few weeks after its first, read, It's well made on a moderate budget outlay, relying upon developments of surprises confined to psychology and mental reactions rather than transformation to grotesque and marauding characters. The critic Manny Farber declared Cat People to be the best Hollywood film in years. At the Hawaii Theatre in Hollywood, it played for 13 weeks straight. By the time Cat People left American theatres, RKO's horror unit was the talk of Hollywood, and over $4 million had made its way to the studio. By the time international grosses were added, Cat People had earned over $8 million, some 60 times its minuscule budget. As a reward, Lou Ostro gave DeWitt Bodine a long-term contract as an RKO screenwriter, as well as an extravagant pay rise. To Jacques Tourneur, he signed off on a $5,000 bonus, plus a new contract that promised Tourneur would be given larger budgets and A-list talent once he had completed three films for Val Luton's unit. As for Luton himself, the weekly paycheck remained at $250. Producers were meant to produce hit movies. He had merely justified his hiring by Charles Kerner. But there was still work to do. Horror had, for the moment, found a new home in Hollywood. It was Val Luton's job to keep it there. With this mandate firmly set, and with the monumental success of Cat People as his calling card, the Luton family put down a $5,000 deposit on Jack Holt's coastal house and made for themselves a home by the waters. Shortly after moving in, a letter was delivered by a special messenger to Luton, who recognized the officious printing on the envelope and smiled. He took his drink out to the patio and watched, as Ruth chased Nina and Val Jr. in and out of the shadows cast by the trees in the garden. Then he tore open the envelope. Dear Val, the letter read, I saw cat people last night, and I am very proud of you. I think it is an altogether superb producing job, and is in every way a much better picture than 90% of the A product that I've seen in recent months. I think it is one of the most credible and most skillfully worked out horror pieces in many years. I am sending a copy of this letter by mail to Mr. Charles Kerner, who I am sure feels as I do, that RKO is fortunate to have made such a ten-strike as the acquisition of your services as producer. 
Other studios hopefully have extended such opportunities to would-be producers by the score without getting a result such as you have delivered at the outset. I wish you well. My love to your family. Sincerely, David O. Selznick Luton smiled and then folded the letter in half and tucked it into his pocket. He squinted against the sun, put down his glass, and then ran down to the garden, where Ruth and the children were playing. Well, Val, it's time to go to work again. How do you feel? Charles Kerner said from behind his desk. Ready, Luton said. What's the assignment? Well, that's up to you, of course, said Kerner. Lou Ostro helped me pick the title this time. Kerner chuckled to himself and picked up a page from a newspaper. What you do with the movie is up to you, as long as you keep the title. Can I have that in writing? You don't need it in writing, Kerner said. I've already made it known you have complete control of your budget and whatever you choose to do on the film. Party's yours. There'll be a slight team change this time. We want to put Bodine on something else. Try the kid out. We're putting Nick Musaraka on a war movie too, so you'll get John Hunt. Kerner handed him the newspaper page. Luton read the headline and looked up with a frown. I walked with a zombie. Kerner nodded. Lou Ostro said to me, no way he's going to be able to turn that into anything but a straight-up horror film. He grinned. It'll be fun to see how you prove him wrong. Thank you for listening to Part 2 of Shadows. Remember, if you'd like early access to Part 3, plus all kinds of other bonus material, go to patreon.com slash attaboysecret, or click the link in the show notes. Thank you very much, and I will see you very soon. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.